Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Cooper Wingert, author of Abolitionists of South Central Pennsylvania. Cooper Wingert, author of Abolitionists of South Central Pennsylvania. When you set out to do this book, did you find much material to work with? Yes, there's actually quite a bit. We have the a lot of newspapers at the time that were both abolitionist papers and anti-abolitionist papers, some in the middle, who often reported about both the anti-slavery debate, the local actors. Um, there's also a good deal of archival material. There's some reminiscences and memoirs. There's some letters from the time. Um, so there's a, a number of different sources with which we can, can kind of construct a portrait of what uh, abolitionism looked like here in South Central PA. Why'd you pick South Central Pennsylvania? Well, I am from here. I'm from near Harrisburg, Enola. Uh, I, and my previous work has really concentrated on this area. Uh, as you know, we are on this uh, program a few years ago. Uh, and I did a book on that covered both the history of slavery in these four counties, Cumberland, Franklin, York, and Adams, uh, as well as the history of the Underground Railroad. So this was an opportunity to kind of explore the lives, the people, uh, and the ideas that really powered the anti-slavery movement right here in South Central PA. So what period of time are you looking at? What era? So abolitionism really as an idea, there's not really a set date for when it begins. Uh, we have some actors as early as the 18th century, some African Americans in Philadelphia. We have Quakers, uh, but the abolitionist movement has really, really picks up beginning around 1830. The Quakers were involved in it later on, but there were a lot of Quaker slave owners early on. Early on, yes, a lot of Quakers throughout Pennsylvania owned slaves, and that surprises a lot of people because um, Quakers are kind of known for their anti-slavery beliefs later on, and they are one of the first religious organizations in the world to abolish slavery, or to, I should say to ban slavery within their, among their own members. But they don't do that until 1774, which is right on the cusp of the American Revolution. So for the first nearly 100 years of Pennsylvania's existence, Quakers are some of the largest slave owners in the colony. And, and as you write your book, as the era starts, slavery is legal in Pennsylvania. Yes, yeah, so slavery is legal pretty much from the start in Pennsylvania. William Penn owned slaves, uh, and it's not actually outlawed in Pennsylvania until 1780. And Pennsylvania is the first state to abolish slavery by legislation. Uh, Vermont did it a couple years before us by uh, constitution. Massachusetts did it by a judicial action. Pennsylvania, we did it by legislation. So uh, it was it called the Gradual Abolition Law, and it was very gradual and very uh, slow moving and meaning that people who were enslaved at the time of its passage would remain slaves for their entire life and their children who were born after the law would become free only on their 28th birthday. So it was a very slow moving law. You say in here that uh, I guess it was around the, the 1780s or, or early 1800s, the town of Carlisle uh, had been home to roughly 80 slaves since the days of the revolution. So what, what kind of jobs would they have had? So what did it mean to be a slave in Pennsylvania then? So the important distinction is in the South, you know, obviously the average slave owner in the Middle South at this time owns about 22 slaves. The average slave owner in Pennsylvania owns one or two. 
Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's any less dehumanizing. In fact, sometimes it could be worse off because of the closer contact. But slaves often live in the same houses as their owners. Uh, they would do a, a wide variety of tasks. Some of them were agricultural. Uh, some of them lived and worked on farms. Some of them were carriage drivers, teamsters. Some of them were physical laborers. Some of them were artisans and uh, craftsmen, blacksmiths. So they performed a wide uh, array of jobs here in South Central PA. But there was also a, a large free black population in the area. Mm -hmm. So the, the free blacks intermingled with the slaves? Quite often, yeah. And there's often times where slave owners would be a little upset by this. They would often try to sell or remove slaves who were too, what they, they kind of feared were too closely in contact with free black communities. Of course, slave owners fear that the more enslaved people interact with free African Americans, the more they will be um, eager to run away. So there's a lot of kind of this population control, you know, control of what they consider to be human chattel uh, that's going on too. Why did the slaves stick around? I mean, you think of an African American who was a slave was interacting with free blacks, they'd say, well, why not me, and hit the road. So there's a number of reasons. Uh, the first one often is, first of all, it was illegal. So and technically, if you're a slave and you run away, you are stealing yourself. As much as that kind of seems contrary to our modern sensibility, it's, it's a fact of law. So they could be recaptured. They could be, technically, they couldn't be sold out of state. But that did happen occasionally, even though it was illegal. Uh, but there's also another factor, which is that a lot of them had enslaved family members, uh, oftentimes who were elderly, who weren't able to kind of take flight as they might be able to. Now again, a lot of slaves did run away, but obviously not all of them did. Uh, and that's largely a part of it. There are a lot of family ties. Uh, in fact, a lot of free African Americans who become free under the, under the gradual abolition law, they stick around here in South Central PA because they have family members who are still in slavery and they don't want to leave their family members. Now, if, if a, there was a slave owner in South Central Pennsylvania and the gradual Emancipation Act was taking place and somebody was going to be freed in a few years. Were there examples of them selling them to a, like Maryland, to a slave state so they would continue to be slaves? So there were allegations about this. So basically what you're referring to is there under the law they create this definition of term slaves, which are people who are born after March 1st, 1780, the day the law is passed, uh, and they are supposed to be free when they reach the age of 28. And there's another law that's enacted in 1788 which kind of clarifies that Pennsylvania slave owners can't just sell them out of state into perpetual lifetime slavery. Now, there's obviously still the potential that this may have still happened. There are some allegations about it, but it probably wasn't widespread. That, that's what we can kind of tell about that. So if uh, uh, there was a freed slave living in South Central Pennsylvania, and when they became free, what did they do? Could they find work? Some could, and, and one of the things that uh, we do find, though, is a lot of them had problems both kind of play, you know, trying to break into the workforce as an African-American. Uh, also, there really isn't much of a social safety net. So there was one African-American man in Carlisle, and he gets, he gets a job working at a blacksmith's forge, uh, and he gets injured, uh, which he's, he can't work for a couple months. Uh, he ends up being thrown in debtor's prison. So he can't work, and now he's back in a prison, you know, not quite slavery, but it's not that much better either. Now, in Carlisle, or South Central Pennsylvania, is right on the border of Maryland, mm -hmm. a slave state. Was there much back and forth between Maryland and Pennsylvania? So one of the important things to remember is west of the Susquehanna River. The Susquehanna River isn't bridged until around the War of 1812. So a lot of, especially when you're talking about the formative years of the kind of colonial settlement here uh, from the 1750s all the way up through uh, about 1810, right to the War of 1812, 
a lot of the commerce is conducted, instead of going east towards Lancaster and Philadelphia, a lot of it's conducted to the south in places like Maryland, Baltimore, Hagerstown, uh, Winchester, Virginia. So there's a lot of connections, there's a lot of intermarriage between uh, South Central PA families and Southern slave-owning families, which means there's a lot of ties to slavery and there's a lot of hesitancy, especially among places like Carlisle, Chambersburg, Gettysburg, which also rely on Southern business, that they don't really want to talk or denounce slavery because they don't want to anger their Southern friends, neighbors, relatives, and clients. How often would a runaway slave from the South pass through? Quite often, and now it really picks up uh, in, the, in the years immediately preceding the Civil War, uh, but we have accounts of runaway slaves coming up through this area throughout you know, the, the time of the Revolutionary War all the way up until the Civil War. Now, your book is about abolitionists, mm -hmm. but was there much overlap between the abolitionists and the people involved in the Underground Railroad? So basically, you know, abolitionists as a group are kind of a broader group. Now, those who are actually, and there are a few of them who actually are involved in the Underground Railroad. So it's quite, you know, you'd say they pretty much do overlap. Um, abolitionists as a whole, they're actually pretty divided. So there's kind of two main camps. There are abolitionists who we might call moral suasionists. They believe that it is, uh, the, the way to end slavery is through religious persuasion. And then there is another camp that's more politically minded. They believe that the way to end slavery is through attacking it at the ballot box. So you have kind of these two competing schools. They're often at each other's throats, almost, almost sometimes as much as they are attacking slave owners, they're attacking each other. There's rivalry, there's egos at play. Um, so abolitionists themselves are quite a diverse lot. And what would have been the, the motivation for a, a white Pennsylvanian to be an abolitionist? So first off, a lot of abolitionists are African Americans. You could, um, a lot of them from Philadelphia, a lot of locals um, who I talk about in the book are abolitionists. For white Americans at the time, really the, the white American support for the abolitionist movement really skyrockets in the 1820s and 1830s. So a lot of people were influenced by the Second Great Awakening, by different religious calls. Uh, they really believed that slave, a lot of people kind of got this urgency that slavery is a moral sin and they need to do their part to try to ex extinguish it. I want to read this. You say uh, uh, your, your book is divided into different areas, counties mm -hmm. and, and towns, uh, but you write Adams County the Anti-Slavery Society apparently had no black members. Mm -hmm. Adams County blacks organized their, on their own. Were, did, did black abolitionists and white abolitionists get along? Sometimes and sometimes not. So the Adams County one is kind of, it's hard to determine for sure. We don't have any explicit you know, evidence that they banned African Americans from joining the society. Actually, the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, the statewide group in Philadelphia, back in the 1790s, they actually had a ban on black members, ironically enough, they're an abolition society. And again, it kind of goes to this, this, you know, just how complex and diverse abolitionists were. And when I say diverse, I don't necessarily mean diverse in our modern sense, but diverse in their opinions and their ideas. So there are some abolitionists who believe in racial equality. There are some abolitionists who don't believe in racial equality. So it's, it's a quite a, you know, a, a mixed lot. But uh, in Gettysburg, for instance, you have the Adams County Anti-Slavery Society, which is apparently all white. Uh, there, are, there are Lutherans, there are, are Quakers, there's a whole bunch of different white members of Adams County who are joined the society. And then out of the AME Church, you have the Slaves Refuge Society, which is organized by local African Americans. And then was there an overlap between abolitionists and people who favored colonization? 
Yeah, so there's a lot of, so colonization, just to clarify, that is the, there are these plans that really start to pick up steam in the 18-teens. They're supported by Henry Clay and James Monroe. The idea is to take free blacks or to compensate slave owners and settle African Americans supposedly back in Africa. Now, even though most of them were, had been born in America. Uh, and most African-American activists really criticized this. They thought that it was a racist scheme to kind of just remove the problem instead of dealing with uh, America's problem of racism. And there are some abolitionists locally who do support colonization. There are uh, some pretty big calls for colonization in places like uh, Carlisle, Chambersburg, and Gettysburg, uh, and York. But um, you know, some white abolitionists, it gets very little black support, though. Could, could black abolitionists be politically effective? Well, I mean, I, I think definitely, and oftentimes they had to work with white abolitionists, and sometimes they had to kind of negotiate, you know, there, even times white abolitionists would be, have this kind of paternalistic attitude towards fugitive slaves. The, there's a famous instance with William Lloyd Garrison, who's a Boston abolitionist, and he kind of sees himself as a mentor or a father figure to Frederick Douglass, the very famous fugitive slave in order, uh, and they eventually kind of have a rupture in their relationship in the mid-1840s where Douglass goes his own way. So there are some you know, problems, but obviously you know, uh, African-Americans, uh, African fugitive slaves really drove the movement. They wrote pamphlets, they published autobiographies. Douglas did. Another fugitive slave who passed through our areas, uh, a man named James Pennington, wrote also an autobiography. And what they did is they described their experiences, they communicated the horrors of slavery, they could give authentic testimony to it, and they really tried to educate the northern public about just how bad slavery was. Did uh, abolitionist groups have to meet in secret? So no, that's one of the things is abolitionists, pretty much everyone knew who the abolitionists in their community were. There's a few who kind of are able to mask their identity and not be known as an abolitionist, but that's very rare. Uh, most, most times abolitionists were too vocal. They often annoyed their neighbors with how much they talked about slavery and abolition. And we often have this kind of idea that abolitionists hid behind a curtain and they only acted in the you know, secret, you know, secret at night. And really, that's not true. They were very vocal. They published pamphlets, books. They held lectures. They often uh, had kind of anti-slavery meetings, which often devolved into kind of rabbles and mobs when people who were not friendly to abolition kind of swarmed the meetings. We have a number of instances of that locally. Well, with abolitionists, um, were the, was it a dangerous game to be an abolitionist and also be involved in the Underground Railroad because you were more prominent? So it, you, you, you would think that and, that, and that would be on the surface. So again, it is illegal to be, first of all, it's illegal to be a fugitive slave, as we've said. It's illegal to steal yourself. And it's also illegal to help a fugitive slave, uh, in theory. But oftentimes, it's very seldom enforced. And now there are a couple instances of, uh, there's one, one famous instance in Boiling Springs of a local man who was uh, convicted for helping fugitive slaves. But by and large, the vast majority of abolitionists who were involved in the Underground Railroad are never even, uh, never even charged with a crime. So in the North, you are pretty, you can get off scotch-free, but in the South, anyone who is suspected of being abolitionist, the prison sentences are very harsh, uh, and they are quite for a long, they are quite, you know, large and lengthy prison sentences. It's illegal to be an abolitionist in the South? It was elite. There, there were some states that enacted laws where you could not carry certain pamphlets. Um, there, you could not. Um, basically, you couldn't espouse. They, they would call them incendiary pamphlets or incendiary things because they would they would kind of accuse you of trying to start a slave revolt. So that was their uh, their rationale for for doing that. And they often did imprison or publicly abuse people who were had abolitionist sympathies. Were there elected officials who were? Uh, 
unabashed abolitionists? Yeah, the most, the most prominent local abolitionist uh, elected official would be Thaddeus Stevens. So he is born in Vermont, and he comes down to Pennsylvania looking for work. He ends up becoming a lawyer in Gettysburg, and he becomes a state representative for Gettysburg and Harrisburg. And then he later moves out to Lancaster and becomes a congressman. So Stevens is a very calculating political operator. So he owns a lot of property in and around Gettysburg. Uh, the superintendent of his ironworks, Caledonia Ironworks, which is right on the border of Franklin Adams County along what we now know as Route 30, uh, is William Hammett. He's well known for helping fugitive slaves, often gives work to people, uh, to free African Americans as well as fugitive slaves at the ironworks. Uh, and Stevens also later when he's Lancaster earns a reputation for his anti-slavery actions. Why was Thaddeus Stevens an abolitionist? That's hard to say. So we, we don't really know, you know, Stephen's life story and his inner thought that he's one of those guys who is not um, necessarily, doesn't pour his heart out in letters or memoirs. He, he doesn't leave an autobiography per se. So he, the earliest kind of anti-slavery expression we know is he gave this toast in 1823 in Gettysburg where he talked about may the, may the next president be uh, a, someone who never um, sh put shackles on a slave, basically to paraphrase. And that's one of the earliest things. But we also know that during his early career, like we're talking 18 teens, 1820s, as a lawyer in Gettysburg, Stevens represented both fugitive slaves and slave owners. And in fact, he won a pretty big case. It was in Franklin County, actually, uh, where he, there, was, there were some slaves who had escaped, and he represented the slave owner and successfully returned those slaves to bondage. Now, some biographers have, have cited this as maybe a turning point. Maybe he had an epiphany. I think that was about 1821, 1822. And that may have been something where Stevens had some really deep remorse and regret, uh, and that propelled him to become kind of the fervent abolitionist he was. But again, that's speculation. We don't know what he was, what was actually inside of his mind. You mentioned fugitive slaves. Were there many of them around this area, South Central Pennsylvania, at the time? Quite a lot. So a lot of fugitive slaves, once they escaped slavery, they crossed the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, in theory, they could be recaptured in Pennsylvania, and some were. Uh, and a lot of them still settle in the region. There's a, there's a lot of fugitive slaves who settle in Columbia, which is in Lancaster County, in Wrightsville, in Harrisburg. Uh, there's some in Carlisle and Chambersburg. So fugitive slaves do settle in the area. Why would they have settled that close to the slave state, Maryland? That, again, that's hard to say. Some of it, sometimes it was economic opportunity. Sometimes they kind of hoped to assimilate into free black communities that were already existent in the North. Places like Harrisburg had a pretty sizable uh, free black community. Uh, other times, perhaps they had some kind of hope to maybe be reunited with family members who were still in bondage. Because remember, when slaves are fleeing from Maryland and Virginia, that's where most of the runaways who come to Pennsylvania are from, they are often, the people who are running away are often able-bodied young males. They're often not women with young children. They're often not older parents. Sometimes slaves would try to you know, buy the freedom of other family members. So there, there may have been a, a complex array of, thing, of reasons why they were staying so close. Were there Pennsylvanians who made a living as slave catchers? Yes, there were. So there were a lot out of Franklin County. There were the Logan brothers. They were quite notorious. There was a man named Dan Logan who was the kind of the, the face of the slave catching operation for that family. There, were even, there was even one instance in Shippensburg in Western, or at Leesburg in Western uh, Cumberland County where there was an, a, a family, two brothers, one was an abolitionist and one was a slave catcher. So slave catching could be a very profitable business. Uh, it could also be a very legally hazardous business. There were some local slave catchers who ended up getting uh, jail time. There was one man in Harrisburg who was actually a borough constable in Harrisburg. And he, 
he basically would he was caught kidnapping or tr attempting to kidnap a free African American into slavery, and he ended up serving about three years in prison for it. So it was definitely you know there were a lot of slave catchers operating, but they weren't necessarily given free license. Sometimes they were, and oftentimes they did kidnap people, sometimes free people, and take them back or send them, sell them into slavery. But you know I wouldn't over exaggerate the, their influence you know in the area. What were the Pennsylvania laws at the time? So Pennsylvania is one of a, a number of northern states that enacts what's called personal liberty laws. So going back to the federal, uh, back to George Washington's administration, uh, in 1793, there is a Fugitive Slave Act, which is the first one. And that basically says that if a, if a slave runs away from the South uh, and crosses into a state, a free state, they're still a slave. And basically saying that a slave owner has a right to recapture their slave. But it doesn't say how they're going to do that. So a lot of northern states in the beginning of the 1820s say, well, we're going to make this difficult. So we're going to mandate trials by jury for fugitive slaves. New York does that. In Pennsylvania, we have a law that in 1847 that says uh, no, no fugitive slave can be held in any prison in the Commonwealth. So basically making it very difficult for a slave owner to come north to recapture or seize their fugitive slave and bring them back south safely without a rescue attempt being, being made. Uh, making the process difficult, time consuming, expensive, and basically it was an, basically obstruction um, on the part of northern states. Pennsylvania was right there. So uh, the, if a, a slave catcher captured someone who they thought was a, a runaway, what was the process? So the process really doesn't exist until 1850. So in 1850, we often, we've probably heard in school books about the Compromise of 1850. The most notorious part of that is the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which basically is the 1793 law, but with teeth. So they create this, this uh, nas national network of enforcers, and they're called US commissioners. And they are officials who are charged with overseeing fugitive slave cases. So there's no judge, there's no jury, there's no trial. Uh, the law is meant, to, it's again, it's a federal law. It's meant to make the process, uh, kind of speed up the process, uh, make it more efficient. So these commissioners are to hold a hearing. And basically what happens is a slave catcher or a slave holder gets a warrant. They bring this fugitive slave before a commissioner. And the commissioner will decide whether the person is a slave or whether they are free. Now, if they decide they're a slave, the commissioner is paid $10. If they decide they're free, the commissioner is paid $5. And there's actually an official excuse that's written in the law by, the law is written by Southerners, if you can't tell. But there's actually an official excuse, and they say, well, there's more paperwork involved to send someone back to slavery. But people both north and south knew the intent of the law was to return as many people to slavery in as an efficient manner as possible. Uh, it wasn't to give people a fair hearing. Uh, and in fact, one of the first cases under this law is uh, a man in, in Philadelphia who is basically, he's taken, brought before a US commissioner and railroaded to slavery. And when he arrives in Maryland, the slave owner says, this isn't my slave. You've got the wrong man. So the law was extremely controversial, uh, and it's not really widely enforced throughout most, most of the North. How, how would they identify somebody in an era before photographs? That's one of the big things, and we, we often kind of forget about that. You know, there, there's, identification was a whole different thing in the 19th century. So there's all sorts of kind of sometimes bordering on the bizarre descriptions. There's where um, slave owners sometimes would have to pr uh, produce an affidavit from their home, um, like their home county courthouse, listing the you know, height, uh, age, description of the slave. And oftentimes, they were kind of 
preoccupied with the description of the skin color of the slave. Was he uh, dark? Was he mulatto, which is half white, half black? Was he quadroon, which is even lighter? You know, th this is kind of this obsession. And there's oftentimes with these cases in the North where uh, Northern commissioners are trying to look at, they're kind of scrutinizing the slave, looking at the description, uh, and they're kind of becoming like art experts, trying to, to art, racist art experts, you might say, trying to judge, is this, this person dark? Are they medium dark? You know, all these bizarre descriptions that end up coming through. Oh, you say in here, um, if someone cooperated with slave catchers or blew the whistle on a fugitive slave stowed away nearby, word would spread quickly among the extensive and oft-times high-placed anti-slavery society members. And you mentioned Thaddeus Stevens, mm -hmm. who was on the board of the Gettysburg Bank, who would apparently make it difficult, put financial pressure, mm -hmm. make it difficult for people to get loans if he thought they were slave catchers. And I think the other thing that's more, even more important was there was a, there was a, a man named McLean who was a school teacher in the Gettysburg School District. And Stevens was on the school board. And this, the McLean gave, went out and he criticized abolitionists publicly. Uh, and at the very next meeting, he was, he was terminated. So it was very clear that Stevens was pressuring people. He, did, he used his positions, and you can say rightly or wrongly, probably not ethically, to uh, make, make it very clear that he did not want people who were anti-abolitionists in Gettysburg. Was abolitionism very big in, in central Pennsylvania because, or is, was it seen as kind of a Philadelphia thing? So Philadelphia is definitely an epicenter of abolitionism, but there are certainly pockets in South Central PA that are more friendly to abolitionism than others. You have Northern Adams County, which is really filled with Quakers. Gettysburg itself, you have the Slaves Refuge Society that's powered by free African Americans. You have white abolitionists. Harrisburg also has a pretty strong and active free black community. So. I think it's more, you look at it more as pockets of abolitionism than kind of just a, you know, a region-wide uh, support. Were there any Southern sympathizers in South Central Pennsylvania? Very many, yes. And again, it goes back to the, you know, the, a lot of the family connections, a lot of business connections too. In fact, there's an abolitionist lecturer from Vermont named Jonathan Blanchard, and he wants to go to Carlisle, I think it's 1836, to speak at the Presbyterian Church about uh, abolition, basically just give an anti-slavery lecture. And a, a, a number of the leading citizens of Carlisle, I mean, the kind of the who's who of Carlisle, writes him a letter and says, we do not want you to give this lecture. It'll be disruptive. Uh, it'll disturb the peace. It'll upset our southern neighbors. And in, in this part of Pennsylvania, how did they vote in uh, the presidential election? 1856, James Buchanan, 1860, Abraham Lincoln. Well, I'm not familiar with the exact numbers, but generally this area voted Democratic. A Democratic Party at the time was generally pro-slavery. But again, there's a lot of nuance to that. Gettysburg did have a number of congressmen who were somewhat anti-slavery. Uh, Edward McPherson, who was served two terms, was actually uh, a fairly anti-slavery congressman. He serves between 1858 and 1862, and he represents a, a district that includes Gettysburg. Is he of the McPherson's Ridge? He is family? of the McPherson's Ridge of Gettysburg. For those who are Gettysburg buffs, yeah, he actually owns the the farm that is on the western side of town that's prominent in the first day's battle. Are there? Other people you came across in this book who you thought should be more famous? I'd say definitely James Pennington. He is the fugitive slave, I believe we mentioned him earlier, who comes through this region in the 1820s. There's also an, a number of, uh, there's uh, Lydia Lundy, who is the half-sister of Benjamin Lundy. And again, this car is some more, more explanation. Benjamin Lundy is probably the most famous abolitionist in America prior to 1830. Uh, he kind of has a more of a gentle, persuasive tactic to him. He tries to persuade slave owners it's in their own economic interest to get rid of slavery. And his half-sister, he has a whole newspaper, um, 
gets national circulation, but his half-sister settles in York Springs in northern Adams County, uh, and he often visits her here, and she becomes um, a pretty active abolitionist. She's both active in circulating petitions that go to Congress, and she also um, is involved in the Underground Railroad with her husband, uh, Joel Weirman, who's also a Quaker. And in doing your research, you read anti-abolitionist uh, newspapers mm -hmm. and pro-slavery newspapers? Yep. What do they read like? So some of them are pretty, um, they're, they're usually pretty demonstrative and there are abolitionists are, they are very convinced that they are right. Um, they, they are mainly concerned, they often use the language, we want to shine a light on slavery and they call it the barbarous system. They believe that if people know what slavery is really like, they will not condone it. That um, if slavery is, you know, fully exposed, that it will just crumble in its own, you know, wickedness. On the other hand, you have a lot of anti-abolitionist newspapers, and they use a lot of different kind of fear tactics, especially here in Pennsylvania. Uh, there's a couple in Chambersburg that I quote in the book, uh, and they will talk about, well, if slavery is abolished, you'll have a bunch of free African-Americans who come north and take your jobs. Uh, and they even use like kind of threats of amalgamation, which means um, uh, intermarriage or uh, relationships between uh, black men and white women most commonly. Uh, and they often use that threat as kind of, you know, we have to keep slavery in place to keep kind of the social structure in place of whites on top of blacks. That's a, often a common rejoinder. Um, there's also, again, there's also pro-slavery literature that often comes from the South. Sometimes it even comes from the North. There are, are pro-slavery academics throughout the country, uh, and they will argue that slavery is a positive good. Some of them will argue that uh, African Americans are inferior, that their only natural position in life is servitude, that they couldn't handle freedom even if they had it, uh, that it's a blessing for them to be in slavery, and that they're content and happy. Uh, and that's what abolitionists are trying to dispute. They're trying to say, no, this isn't true. And that's, again, going to the question of what African Americans can contribute effectively. They are the authentic testimony to say, this is not true. Here is just how bad slavery is. You said Philadelphia was the epicenter of uh, abolitionist movement. What was going on in Philadelphia? Well, in, in Pennsylvania, it definitely mm -hmm. was. Yes, there's, there's a, a good number of activists there. There's actually some local activists from uh, Carlisle. There's a, a Carlisle native named James Miller McKim who ends up going, he goes to Dickinson College. He later goes out to Philadelphia and assumes a senior position in the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. So they publish a, a highly influential newspaper called the Pennsylvania Freeman even though it's almost chronically in debt. Uh, it's still, it's a great resource for historians. I'm very glad uh, they have it. And they publish some of the most stinging editorials about slavery. But they also keep a, a very close eye on fugitive slave cases throughout Pennsylvania, throughout the North. Uh, and they're definitely a voice for abolitionists. This is your third time on the program. Mm -hmm. You are uh, now a college student? Yes, I am. Going where? I'm at Dickinson College. In what year? I'm a junior. Studying? History. Now, how many books have you written? This is my 11th book. When did you start writing books, history books? So I, I started writing when I was about 12, uh, and ultimately that culminated in one when I was 14 called The Confederate Approach on Harrisburg. So my initial interest was really, as again, I've said I was, I'm from the Harrisburg area. My initial interest was in the Civil War engagements that took place right here just before the Battle of Gettysburg. So in areas like we now know as Camp Hill, Mechanicsburg, the West Shore area of Harrisburg, that was where I initially really got fascinated with primary source research. When you when you go to class now, you, you're a, probably more published than some of your teachers. What can you possibly learn about history as a student? I think there's a lot to learn. First of all, I mean, history, you know, I've studied a couple of topics, but there, history is a vast, vast field. 
Um, I really enjoy honing the craft of history to me, uh, the different methodologies we use, the different techniques to kind of get at the source. You know, there's all sorts of different types of history. There's kind of the history that studies, um, you know, significant figures. There's history that we call history from below, where you're looking at oftentimes people like fugitive slaves who oftentimes don't have a voice because they weren't able to write, they weren't able to tell their side of the story, and trying to piece together um, what their choices were, what they try to do and what they were about um, through other people's writings. Often I have college professors on as guests and I ask them what they are teaching, but what classes are you taking? I'm taking some classes on the American Revolution, I'm taking uh, some classes on scientific revolutions, and I'm also uh, taking a class on Renaissance Europe because I'm trying to patch up some uh, gaps in my knowledge in European history. Now in, in doing those, are you just learning the history of the era or, or are you learning how to study and how to write about the history of the era? Well, I think when you learn about the history of the era, you learn you, you learn all sorts of different techniques about how to write it, how to interpret it, uh, and I think that's essential. I mean, ultimately history, you know, how, you know how many history books have been written about someone like Gettysburg, too, is you can have the same set of sources and people interpret it in different ways, and I think that's one of the most fascinating things, getting into the kind of the historiographical arguments of, you know, there's some big ones, there's some minor ones, uh, and I think that's fascinating, just the, the process of how we do history. How much time do you spend researching versus sitting there typing it out? That's hard to, that's hard to say, because I, I often write as I research, which some people don't do. I find it, you know, uh, I find it that's the way I've always done it. So I would say probably 60-40, 60% research, 40% writing. Which part do you like better? That's hard to say. I, I couldn't do one without the other, obviously. Definitely, I, I, li I really like the research phase. Um, finding When you find that kind of, that letter or that diary that you really have been looking for, that thing that just takes you aback, that is always a great moment. Though I do really enjoy writing it up, too. How often do you spend a whole day or multiple days and have nothing to show for it? Um, it happens often, and, and you know, then again, when you find something, you forget about those days, when you find that big letter that you're looking for, that diary, but generally, when you're doing research, you're going to come up with more dead ends than you are actual results, and that's something you have to be prepared for. You just have to be patient. You have to kind of evaluate what's the best, you know, where, where am I going to find the sources, and, you know, hope for the best. When you're doing research, do you come across things that you set aside for future books? Yeah, all the time. And that's one of the problems, too, is that I often, you know, when I'm doing, like when I was doing this book, I find something on this, and I think this is a great topic. And I have to kind of set that aside, focus on what I'm focused on now, uh, and, of course, trying to figure out where will I put this so I can find it two years from now when I'm hopefully writing on that. So, but, yeah, you find a lot of ideas when you're researching. Uh, and oftentimes, I think you find the best ideas in what you can't find literature out about. Like, you know, if, if there's something that you are interested in and it's not, nothing's really been written on it, well, then there's a great book idea. How do you keep a book like this from just being sort of a book report on what other people have written? You have to have original sources. And that's one thing is I think I, I, do not, I would not want to write a book which is basically just a waste of paper. I want to have something new to contribute, something original. Uh, for this, we had a number of different new letters, a lot of uh, newspaper accounts from the 1840s and 50s that really hadn't been used, hadn't, hadn't been published since their original publication uh, back almost 200 years ago. So I felt like there was enough material in here, enough of the new abolitionists who really hadn't gotten their fair share of attention uh, that I could put this together. You say you're going to Dickinson mm -hmm. College. Is it Dickinson? 
Dickinson University? Dickinson College, yeah. Dickinson College in Carlisle, and you have a chapter on Dickinson. Yes, I do. What was going on at Dickinson in these pre-Civil War years? So Dickinson, prior to the Civil War, almost at, at sometimes almost half of the student body was from the South. Um, so they rely heavily on uh, students from principally Maryland, Virginia, but some from even further in the Deep South. Uh, and it was often kind of a thing that this, Dickinson isn't alone. Uh, places like Pennsylvania College, what we now know as Gettysburg College, uh, another preparatory school called Tuscarora Academy, which is no longer in operation as a school up in Juniata County, they all relied heavily on Southern students. And Dickinson was no different. In fact, they were one of the, had one of the highest percentages. And there's obviously, when we get into the 1850s, we have a lot of sectional debate over slavery, and that carries into the classrooms, into the kind of the student uh, environment, uh, and it really roils the Dickinson campus. Uh, in fact, uh, by 1861, as the war is broken out, a lot of Southern students just leave. The college president is trying to get everybody to stay in class because people are trying to go join the armies. Um, so it's definitely a very tense atmosphere in the lead up to the Civil War. Weren't Southern parents a little skittish about sending their kids, their sons, north to go to college? In some senses. Now, there are other accounts where um, some Southern students later recollected that it was kind of a fashionable thing to do, that oftentimes the schools of the North were kind of be had better reputations than those in the South at the time. So they were eager to kind of, you know, it's kind of a name game, you know, oh, my son is going to this school and this place. So it was often that they would send them north for those reasons. And Southern students generally would take great offense if there were abolitionist professors. In fact, there was a professor at Dickinson who was accused of being an abolitionist. He was accused of inciting a riot in Carlisle in 1847. And about 90 Southern students get up in unison and threaten to leave the college if, um, unless he kind of accounts for himself, which he did. Um, so it gives you an idea of just the power they had, too, over institutions. And the Dickinson president at the time, Robert Emery, he's writing letters to his friends in the South saying, you've got to believe I would never have an abolitionist on my faculty. You know, th th this is, these are lies. You know, please tell your friends we are not an abolitionist school. So there's, again, a number, you know, because Southern students are so vital to the tuition fund that they are kind of dictating what, uh, how, how public Pennsylvania professors are going to make their abolitionist sentiments. And the professor you talked about was John McClintock? John McClintock, yeah. Can you tell the story about how he sure. got in trouble in the first place, but it just happened to be standing on the steps of the courthouse? So that's, you know, there's a whole debate about this, and that we go back to 1847. Um, so in, in June 1847, this is when the, Pen this is actually the, that personal liberty law in Pennsylvania where slave owners, fugitive slaves could not be held in any jail in the Commonwealth under penalty of the law. And that was the, the obstruction part of, you know, kind of obstructing slave owners' ability to recover their fugitive slaves. So these two Maryland slave owners come up, they recapture uh, three fugitive slaves, and they hold them in a jail. They somehow get them to be um, secured in, in Carlisle's Cumberland County Jail. So McClintock notifies the judge at their, this hearing. They're having a hearing where they're about to be returned south. He notifies the judge of this recent law, and the judge, the law is so new, the judge isn't aware of it. So McClintock goes home, he brings a copy of the newspaper in which the law is printed, and at that time, the fugitive slaves are being escorted down the steps of the courthouse, uh, and depending on who you want to believe, McClintock either gave the signal for a bunch of free African Americans to come out to swarm the slaveholders uh, and free the fugitive slaves. Some say it was just kind of a spontaneous thing. Of course, Southerners accused McClintock of doing it. But in the process, one of the slave owners, a man named Kennedy, is trampled to death in this riot. Uh, it's a pretty bloody scene. Uh, and McClintock, as well as about 13 African Americans, are charged with conspiracy to start a riot. 
how did he bounce back from that? So McClintock, he's the white man, he is acquitted. Uh, but about a dozen African Americans are sentenced to solitary confinement at the Eastern State Penitentiary for their involvement. Uh, it's a, such a harsh sentence, it was often thought to be vindictive of the judge who had lost a political race. Uh, and it's later overturned by the state Supreme Court. But certainly they did not fare nearly as well as McClintock. Was McClintock then or later a, an abolitionist activist? So he was pretty much, he was an abolitionist privately at least. We know that from his letters. Now he apparently did not let on about that, which was why it came as such a surprise to many of the Southern students at Dickinson that their beloved Professor McClintock was an abolitionist. But after that, he's kind of known as a symbol of abolitionist resistance. Um, and he, he leaves Dickinson shortly thereafter. And he ends up being in Paris during the American Civil War. And he's kind of one of the people who is trying to tamp down any European support for the Confederacy, he's saying, and trying to assure them of the justness of the cause uh, of the Union. I want to ask you about something that is completely unrelated <clears throat> to South Central Pennsylvania. But you, you say in here, um, Mexican leader Santa Ana outlawed slavery in Mexico when Texans refused to obey the new Mexican statutes. Santa Ana led a famous military expedition which resulted in his own capture. So the, the Texas, the Alamo and all that was because the Texans wanted to keep slaves and the Mexicans wanted to free them? Yeah, and that's one, one of the, uh, that's actually a, um, based off a quote from Benjamin Lundy, who's the abolitionist figure prior to 1830, and a lot of abolitionists sounded the alarm about Texas. They saw the admission of Texas, including abolitionists right here in South Central PA, they see the, the admission of Texas as, again, another kind of win for the slave power. They, they kind of have this, you might call it a conspiracy theory, um, where they basically believe the federal government is in the control of slave owners and that it's doing the slave owners bidding. And the slave owners want fresh ground to expand slavery, and Texas is obviously a huge piece of territory. Uh, and obviously slavery did play a pretty big role in the, you know, the, Texas Revolution and, and subsequently the uh, efforts to admit it into the Union. A lot of the, the debate about its admission was over how it would come in as a slave state. Some, some abolitionists were worried that they would divide Texas up into five different states and have ten pro-slavery senators. Ultimately, they didn't do that, obviously, but it gives you an idea of just the paranoia and the fear surrounding its admission. Was there a point at which Pennsylvania state government became a solid abolitionist? There really wasn't. Because um, even during the Civil War, there's, you know, Republican leaders, the party of Abraham Lincoln, they're a little ambiguous about slavery, about abolition. There was an anti-slavery governor that Pennsylvania had in the 1830s. His name was Rittner. After, actually, the Rittner Highway and Route 11 is named after him. But he, again, he's more of an anti-slavery governor. He's, he doesn't do any, you know, overt steps to abolish slavery. Um, they're more cautious acts, I would say. Like we have, uh, like a number of other northern states, we have these personal liberty laws. They're not really outright anti-slavery, but they are certainly uh, much to the pleasure of anti-slavery activists. Would Frederick Douglass have been seen much around South Central Pennsylvania? Yes, yeah, so Frederick Douglass comes to South Central Pennsylvania a couple times. The first time he comes to Gettysburg, sometime during the 1840s, and he, gives, he goes on a lecture tour. We had a lot of abolitionists who lectured throughout the region. Frederick Douglass is one of them. And then he comes back in 1859 because there's an old friend and associate of his named John Brown who is in Chambersburg. And Brown is planning his insurrection uh, at Harper's Ferry. And he's basing a lot of his efforts out, out of Chambersburg. He's actually in the Rittner boarding house in Chambersburg, the 
uh, a relative of the former anti-slavery governor. And Brown is kind of under an alias. He has a long white beard to conceal his identity. Uh, and he asks Douglas to come meet him in Chambersburg. But when Douglas arrives in Chambersburg, he's so well known. He's probably the most famous African-American in the country at the time that he is immediately asked to give a, a lecture in the town hall in Chambersburg, which he has to do to cover for himself. Of course, the pro-slavery papers were attacking him. The abolitionists in the town were heralding his presence, You know, the usual kind of polarized reception. But then he meets with Brown in secret at this limestone quarry just outside of Chambersburg. And Brown is kind of entreating him, please come join me, I'll protect you with my life. Gives him a big bear hug. Uh, and Douglas ultimately says, no, I'm not going to join you. Uh, and they part, they part ways. Douglas returns home. But when Brown's plot fails, uh, they discover a trunk of papers that Brown had. And there are, in there are letters from Frederick Douglass. So Douglass immediately com becomes a suspect. He flees to Canada and later to England, uh, where he tries to avoid you know, possibly being sent, to sou sent south and hanged along with Brown. Uh, and in fact, if, if he had been here, he might have been brought before a Senate hearing when the chairman of the committee investigating that was Jefferson Davis the future Confederate president, which would have been very interesting to see Frederick Douglass across the table from Jefferson Davis. But Douglass um, took you know, a lot of caution, escaped to England, and stays there. Did you say Frederick Douglass was a, an escaped slave in the first place? Frederick Douglass was born into slavery, I believe, on the eastern shore of Maryland. Uh, and he escapes from around Easton. Well, if he was such a prominent person, wouldn't he have always been a target for In, in theory, yeah. And that's the law? What, and he did fear that at times. And again, he also lived up in uh, Massachusetts and later in Rochester, New York, which is, you know, it's, it's a pretty far way up there. If he had lived near the border of Pennsylvania, in fact, that he says when he comes into Gettysburg that he felt like he was brushing up against the wall of his prison, that he couldn't go any further south without, you know, obviously forfeiting his liberty. And there is actually a, a point where his freedom is bought from his, uh, a couple of abolitionists in England, actually, uh, buy his freedom formally from his former slave owner. Uh, and this happens actually quite a lot where abolitionists would, when a fugitive slave was recaptured and sent south, they would often uh, raise kind of a, a quick pool of money, like sometimes it'd be $900, which is a lot in the 1850s and 40s, uh, to buy that, that person's freedom. They, they called it practical abolition. Now, of course, it wasn't practical to buy the freedom of all four million slaves in the south, but they did this kind of on an as-need basis when a very famous celebrity case was occurring and somebody they wanted to make sure was not returned permanently to slavery. So Douglas, in theory, uh, his freedom was bought, but then again, that, you know, slave catchers did kidnap free African Americans, and I'm sure that they would have used some violence against him being Frederick Douglass. You said uh, in the book that um, the um, John Brown used a house in Chambersburg as a mm -hmm. staging area for his, for his yeah. raid. What did that mean? So John Brown's raid, basically, just to give a, a quick synopsis, so he, in 1859, he's, he believes he can open what he calls the subterranean pathway, which is kind of this bizarre, um, and it, again, Brown wasn't exactly the most, um, he wasn't exactly a planner in the sense that he made concrete plans. He often made sometimes bizarre, um, unrealistic plans, and this is one of them, that he was going to open this passageway down the Appalachian Mountains or, uh, into Virginia. Uh, starting at Harper's Ferry, he was going to capture the federal arsenal, arm the slaves in the region who were going to rise up, uh, join him, and basically march through the South and liberate uh, the enslaved population. Uh, as you can you might predict this, this scheme went uh, wrong almost from the very get-go. Uh, Brown and his, his band were pretty much kind of pinned up in the Harpers Ferry arsenal, uh, and they're, they're captured within a few minutes. 
is the the Rittner House still standing in Chambers? The Rittner House is still standing. Actually, it's part of the. Uh, it's owned by the Franklin County Historical Society. You can get, uh, go for a tour of it. I highly recommend it. I want to ask you about one more thing that is just the incidental story. By by far the most famous <clears throat> abolitionist resident of Chambersburg was Martin Delaney, mm -hmm. born free in Charlestown, Virginia, now modern West Virginia. His family had fled when it was revealed that Martin and his brothers were literate, a crime under Virginia state law. It yeah. was illiterate for Africans to be... It was illegal for... Illegal for Africans to be literate. It was, yeah. So uh, in, in, um, in the South. Now in Pennsylvania, there was never a, an express law against it. Uh, well, the, and especially for free African-Americans, it was not prohibited. Many free African-Americans wrote newspaper columns, were agents of newspapers, and read heavily. But in the South, in, in theory, it was technically illegal for an enslaved person to read. And you, you mentioned earlier that the period between when the uh, Compromise of 1850 was passed and the Civil War was the busiest for runaways. Yeah, so the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, this one that's supposed to have these extra teeth in it, that's supposed to be extra um, extra stringent, in fact backfires. And it, it kind of turns public sentiment more against, the, uh, against slavery in the North. Uh, and a lot of abolitionists in South Central PA say the most prolific time for fugitive slaves is during the 1850s, right after that law uh, is passed. And by the end of the 1850s, you have Harrisburg papers who are printing reports, uh, almost with a tone of bemusement, saying uh, X number of fugitive slaves passed through the city last night uh, on their way to Canada and liberty. So again, when you talk about the Underground Railroad, it's not always so underground, especially when you have newspapers talking about it in a very boastful manner. Even though it was a federal law. Even though it's a federal law, I mean, there's one, one Harrisburg newspaper that actually says the fugitive slave law is a dead letter. Uh, that's how much uh, it really wasn't enforced here. I want to ask you about a picture uh, on your front cover of a hand with a, with mm -hmm. a brand on it of an yes. SS. What's that about? So that actually isn't a direct South Central PA tie, but a lot of abolitionists in South Central Pennsylvania were familiar with the story uh, and use it as kind of a piece of abolitionist propaganda. So there's a man named Jonathan Walker, and he's actually a New England abolitionist, and somehow he ends up in, Flo in Florida constructing railroads in Pensacola. And he meets up with some fugitive slaves, and again, it's kind of one of these bizarre plans that you wonder how, what chances of success it actually had. And he builds a boat, and he is going to take these, I think there's about six, uh, five or six fugitive slaves, going to take them on this boat, and they were going to sail um, down to uh, somewhere in the West Indies and try to gain their freedom. Uh, so they get picked up almost immediately by the Coast Guard uh, at the time, and they are taken. The fugitive slaves are returned to slavery, and Walker, again, he's an abolitionist in the South, which incurs severe penalties. So the, the law, it was a, Florida was a territory at that point. It wasn't yet a state. This is 1844, 1845. And the law was that anybody convicted of slave stealing would be, brand, would be branded on their hand with the letters SS for slave stealer. So it's this very public thing. Uh, and of course, it, it kind of excites a lot of outrage in the North because here's a white man being branded uh, in the South. Uh, especially abolitionists are indignant about this. But when Walker gets back to the North, he writes a narrative, uh, which is quickly published. And John Greenleaf Whittier, who's the abolitionist poet, writes, uh, he transforms that SS from slave stealer to savior to the slave, uh, and writes a very uh, eloquent poem called The Branded Hand, uh, and he instantly becomes kind of a celebrity in the abolitionist movement, does Walker. So it's kind of abolitionists take this, this symbol of punishment and they transform it into a symbol of resistance uh, and, and Walker into a hero. Did you find much example of that, of, of slave stealers, kind of the opposite of slave catchers, abolitionists who would go south and 
and free slaves and bring them north? So that was slaveholders' worst nightmare. Uh, slaveholders actually imagined that there were these vast networks of abolitionists deep in the South who were enticing their slaves. So part of pro-slavery ideology in the South prior to the Civil War was that slaves were content, slaves were faithful, and that slaves would not run away on their own. They had to be enticed to, be, to run away. So when slaves ran away uh, from a plantation or from a house or whatever, uh, the slave owner would often kind of remiss that, oh, my slaves were enticed away by an abolitionist. Often without any proof, and generally without any proof, because generally slaves ran away on their own volition, almost always. Um, so a slave owners worried about this, but generally it was fugitive slaves themselves who decided, I'm going to run away. I mean, there are a few cases where, people, where abolitionists went into the South and helped slaves escape, but they're very few and far in between, uh, and when they are caught, they are severely punished, usually sometimes close to 10 to 20 years in prison. You mentioned earlier that your previous book was Slavery and the Underground Railroad mm -hmm. in South Central Pennsylvania. So, so tracing that, if, if there were uh, slaves in the South, and first of all, where would, where would they most likely have run away from? Was it Maryland or deeper south? So it's very difficult to run away from the Deep South because you have to go through the border south territory. So it's very difficult to run away from Georgia because you'd have to pass through North Carolina or Tennessee and Kentucky uh, and Virginia to get to a free state. So the vast majority of, of slaves who run away are from what we call the border states, the upper south. So that is uh, Maryland, Virginia, Kentucky, and Missouri principally. How would they have known where to go? So uh, slaves have a lot of ways of knowing, oftentimes eavesdropping. Um, sometimes they learn from other slaves who have run away and been recaptured. They might learn from free blacks in the community. Uh, and oft often, again, they, they're listening in on slave owners' conversations, and they generally know that um, North is free. Like James Pennington, the slave I've referred to before, he said he knew that Pennsylvania meant free, but he didn't necessarily know where Pennsylvania is, and he has to kind of get some help on his way to find out where he's going. Uh, what was the communication along the Underground Railroad? I mean, if there was a runaway slave who ended up at uh, knocking on a door in Gettysburg, mm -hmm. would they have known where to send him next, and would those people have known to expect him? So I think sometimes we think of the Underground Railroad as too much of an organized network that it was explicitly from point A to point B. Uh, in fact, you know, fugitive slaves often are kind of finding their own way. Sometimes they go, th go north without any assistance at all. Um, other times they are assisted. Uh, generally, they would kind of fall in with other free black communities uh, who would often kind of direct them from there. So usually once they fell in with somebody who was of anti-slavery sympathy, that's when they would get direction. And those people would generally know somebody uh, in the next town over. So like if a fugitive slave made his way to Carlisle, for example, and he fell in with African Americans there, they would probably know who to direct him to uh, to get across the river to Harrisburg. You say in your book that slave catchers abounded in Franklin County. Were there areas where there are pockets of slave catchers in areas where the runaway slaves might have been more uh, safe? Certainly, yes. Yeah. So Franklin County is one of the kind of most notorious areas where there are slave catchers. Uh, and in fact, one of the interesting things about this is uh, we know that slave catchers in Franklin County for since the 1830s had been employing free blacks. Uh, they called them decoy Negroes, uh, who would oftentimes gain the trust of fugitive slaves and then uh, kind of put them in a location and then betray them to the slave catcher uh, or local authority. So we know that had been used for a while. 
And one of the other ironies about that is, in fact, uh, during the Gettysburg campaign, when the Confederate Army is coming northward, there is a man named Amos Barnes in Mercersburg, which is western Franklin County, and he's a free African-American. And he uh, claims that he actually piloted the Confederates around and showed them the location of runaway slaves. So there are a couple, you know, all, definitely Franklin County is kind of a hot spot for slave catchers. Um, the Cumberland Valley itself is, partly because it's so close to Hagerstown, too. Um, there, there are slave catchers who operate in, in Adams and York County, but I think they were somewhat less prolific. Uh, for some reason, Franklin County, I think just because of that geography, seemed to attract the lion's share of slave catchers. And one more story. Would you tell the story of Pennsylvania Hall in Philadelphia? Sure. So Pennsylvania Hall, going back to John Greenleaf Whittier and the Pennsylvania Freeman, which is the abolitionist newspaper. So John Greenleaf Whittier, he's this New England poet, the fireside poet. Uh, he's also an abolitionist, and he is one of the initial editors of this Pennsylvania Freeman, which is the statewide kind of anti-slavery journal. And they have, they have this big new building they're building in Philadelphia called Pennsylvania Hall. Uh, they're really excited about it. This is May 1838. They open it and an anti-abolitionist mob swarms the place. Whittier barely escapes with his life, uh, and then they burn it to the ground just days after it has been constructed, or completed, I should say. So, you know, again, there's another, but it, again, it became kind of a symbol of abolitionist defiance. We're going to continue despite Pennsylvania Hall. So Philadelphia may have been a hotbed of abolitionism in Pennsylvania, but it wasn't unanimous. Basically, there's nowhere, there's very few places in America, even, even the, the you know, centers of abolitionism, where there's not also a, a number of anti-abolition protesters who are ready to kind of make their presence known uh, and kind of quell whatever they feel, this abolitionist discourse, which they really did not like. You said this is your 11th book? Yes. Do you have book number 12 in the works? Uh, actually, we have one that is it's finished. I co-authored with Scott Mingus, who's an author from York County, uh, and it's on the Cumberland Valley Railroad in the Civil War. Well, we'll have to have you back. Thank you, yeah. We've been speaking with Cooper Wingert. He is the author of this book, Abolitionists of South Central Pennsylvania. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.